But it is good to see you this morning. Welcome again to Community Church. It's always good to see you. It's, it's just a good thing to get off to the right start in our week by gathering as a body of believers. It's just good to come into the Lord's presence with thanksgiving. That's Psalm 95 too. And it's good to praise the Lord with our whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation, right? That's Psalm 111.1. And so I hope you know this morning and each and every Sunday that what we do here at Community Church is very biblical. Each and every week we gather in the assembly of the saints. We gather as a congregation. We come into his presence with thanksgiving and we praise him. At least we hope to praise him with our whole heart. So everything that we do, we want to be very biblical. But in addition to that, Sundays are just a great time to sort of put the troubles of the past behind you. This past week, we all go through difficulties. It's great on Sunday morning to just sort of forget all of that and reset through a time of worship for the week that lies ahead. We can find our Sabbath in the Lord Jesus Christ when we gather together as a body of believers, as we've been talking about over the course of the last week. And by not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, according to Hebrews 10.25, then we're proclaiming our allegiance to the Word of God, right? By trusting in the promises that we have right here in His Word. In other words, when the church of God gathers in obedience to the Word of God, then we can expect to experience the presence of God based on the promises of God. That's Matthew 18, 20 in Psalm 22, verse 3. I mean, sure, you can catch a great sermon on any number of podcasts, and trust me, I do that quite often, but if that's all you do, then you're going to miss out on the promise of His presence, right? And you're going to miss out on the benefits of the body of Christ, if all you do is, is stay home rather than come into God's house, at least on a regular basis, then you're going to miss out on so much of what God has for you. So let me encourage you to make church a priority in your life. Get plugged in. Get involved. If not here, then somewhere, most definitely stay connected and find that place where God wants to use you to serve Him. Right? Begin fellowshipping in one another's homes. We see that happening more and more in our little congregation. And I love seeing that. We need to break bread together. We need to get to know one another on a deeper level. We need to talk about the things of Christ when we come together in order to help build that healthy community of Christians. Right? Because if you do, then what's going to happen is you're going to find yourself growing personally in your own walk with the Lord at a far greater rate than if you are out there on your own trying to grow in Christ. All right, so, okay, that's the end of Sermon 1. We'll move on to the next one. And, and unfortunately for you, it's not going to be quite as short. But uh, we want to continue on in our text in the Gospel of Luke. And last week, we looked at Christ's popularity. It was beginning to grow. And uh, so was his opposition, however, right? These two things were growing at an increased rate, you could say. And we learned that as believers, that we actually find our rest. We find our Sabbath in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. In other words, we don't work for it. We actually live and obey and work from our rest in Christ, okay? And so in our passage today, Jesus is going to teach us exactly how we're going to do that. In fact, the rest of Luke chapter 6 is basically a summary of the character and behavior of a Christian. You could say of a disciple of Christ. And in Luke's account here of the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, 
uh, that we're going to be looking at today, Jesus gives his followers sort of a discipleship 101 class on how to behave as a believer in Jesus Christ. And he gives us a great look into the heart of his teaching as well, which, of course, is the spirit of the law. That's its true intent. Okay, so the mark of every true believer is to be found in their heart, which will then necessarily affect the way that they live. So in a sense, today's passage of Scripture is a bit of a cautionary tale, if you think about it. Because a person who has truly been changed by the Lord Jesus Christ will then truly live for Christ. And he's going to do it in this way, in the way that Christ is going to describe for us here in this chapter. However, he gives us a very stern warning to those who try to find their hope someplace other than in Christ. So another way to look at this passage would be to say that Christians are sort of to be a precursor, so to speak, of the kingdom that's coming, the kingdom that is to come, a kingdom where Christ is the king and his will is actually done on earth as it is in heaven, right? And of course, this would no doubt cause conflict. It would bring persecution to believers, we see that in history. There's no doubt about that. We see it here in our text from these religious leaders who had already begun to plot the destruction or the death of Jesus Christ. That's according to Mark 3, 6. And we read it last week in Luke 6, 11 as well. Okay, so Christ begins here to prepare his disciples for the long road ahead. Okay, and the road is going to be rough. The, you know, following Christ is not always easy. The cost, in fact, of following Christ is very, very high. Right. In reality, it will cost you everything. OK. In the lives of his disciples, especially the 12 here. Well, that's about to change forever. It's about to change forever. So I want us to look at verses 12 through 26 in Luke chapter six today. So Luke six verses 12 through 26 is what we're going to be looking at this morning. And again, the rest of this chapter all the way down through verse 49 is actually all one section of Scripture. Okay, but we're going to be taking it in at least two parts, okay? And in each part, there are actually four subsections. So in part one today, we've got verses 12 through 16. It's the first section, and that's where Jesus goes out onto a mountain to pray. And then he called his disciples to himself, and then he chose 12 from that group. And then section two is going to be 17 through 19, where we see Christ come down to a level place, or your version of the Bible may say a plain from the mountain, he healed the multitude there who were with him. And then verses 20 through 23 is where Jesus begins his sermon by pronouncing blessings. In verses 24 through 26, Christ contrasts those blessings with several woes as well. So this is a very critical time in the ministry of Christ. His fame and the demands on his time and upon his ministry have both increased exponentially. And... Uh, you know, so is the hostility of those who are plotting his destruction. There's no doubt about that. So Christ, knowing the Father's plan for his own life here, and that his journey to the cross was about to begin. That's just around the corner. So Christ now begins to prepare those whom he would choose to take and carry that message of the cross to the world. All right, so would you pray with me again quickly, and then we'll get into our text. We love you, Lord, and thank you again for this time around your word, Lord, that we are able to set aside each and every week to gather as your people, as a body of Christ, to hear from you. Lord, you said that if you went back to heaven, that you would send us the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, and he would guide us into all truth. 
And we know that to be true, Lord. And so we trust that it will be true again this morning, that as we look into your word, your word that has been settled in heaven, it's eternal, that your Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. And we pray that that would happen this morning in the hearts of everyone here. Everyone who hears this message, Lord, that you would do a work in us, help us to know how to apply the truth of what we hear to our own life so that we can become more like Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12, reads like this. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Verse 17, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came near to hear him and, uh, and be healed of their diseases. Verse 18, As well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for the power went out from them, or from him rather, and healed them all. Verse 20, and he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. All right. So we have much to get to today, obviously. So let's look back again at verse 12, and we'll go through this passage one verse at a time. Verse 12, now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. So the words here in uh, verse 12 that says those days, the words in those days is to mean in the days of Christ's increasing popularity, in the days of his increasing opposition, in those days he went out to the mountain to pray. And so immediately we wonder, well, what mountain was this? Right? What mountain did he go out to pray? And, and honestly, we're not sure. Okay, The scripture is not explicit on which mountain, but evidently it was near Capernaum, and that's based on Luke chapter 7, verse 1. But again, as always is the case, rather, the important thing here is not the mountain. The important thing is the man who was on the mountain, right? And what he was doing there. Christ was on the mountain, and Christ is the focus of scripture. And so the word says that he went there to pray. And Luke really does a fantastic job of capturing the prayer life of Jesus so well. I mean, we've already seen it in some of our studies. We saw it after his baptism in Luke chapter 3, verse 21. We saw, again, as the word began to spread about Christ in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, he went out to pray, right? And now here in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, as he prepares to choose the men who would carry his message to the entire world, we see that Christ takes time 
to pray. And Luke, by the way, is the only gospel writer who captures this time of prayer in the life of Christ. But don't you think we should be learning something here as well? from the prayer life of Christ. How much can we learn? I mean, from the persistent prayer life of our Savior. His conversation with His Father before choosing His disciples lasted all night. Right? And you'll remember that the Father actually is the one who gave these men to the Son. Okay? That is John chapter 17, verse 6. So the names of these men were revealed to Christ throughout this night of prayer. Unbroken communion with His Father. Now, you and I, I think, are more like the disciples who find it hard to even pray with him for one hour, right? That's Matthew 26, 40. But Christ is our example here. He continued all night getting clarity and getting assurance from his father as to whom he would choose as his messengers to the world. Okay, so maybe it would be a good idea for us as well to learn this type of discipline in our own life, in our own prayer life, for example, right? Okay, maybe we're not going to stay awake all night, every night in prayer. But what we can learn here is that we need to continue in prayer. The word says Christ continued in prayer. Too often we quit when we get tired in prayer. Maybe a good discipline for us is that we learn how to continue in prayer. And don't give up when we don't get an answer. Verse 13. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. All right. So after this night of prayer, and after the Father revealing the names of these men to Christ, Jesus called all of his disciples to himself, and then he chose twelve of them, and he called them by a new name, didn't he? He called them apostles. So the word for disciple in the Greek, the word is methetes, it means learner. Okay, but the word for apostle is something different. It actually means messenger. It means literally sent one. The word is apostolos. So the calling here is clear, right? These learners are now to become messengers. Their role is different now. Okay, these guys are going to be taking what they've learned from the master, right? And they're going to be teaching it to the world. You see, disciples are to never stop learning from Christ. We are lifelong learners as disciples of Christ. But at some point, we've got to start becoming messengers of the message. We have to become messengers of Christ as well, right? But it's no wonder that Christ continued all night here in prayer before choosing these men because the truth of the gospel message was about to be entrusted to these men, right, for all time. I like what G. Campbell Morgan said. He said, The whole history of the service of the Christian church is rooted in this little paragraph. He says, We are all in apostolic succession. And I think he's right. All of Christianity throughout history would depend upon these messengers getting the message right. Right? Passing down the truth that would be passed down to generation, to generation, and eventually to us. And we're going to turn around and pass it down to the next generations as well. So in a sense, we're all apostles. Every believer has been charged with taking the truth of the gospel to the world. But I want you to notice a couple of things here very quickly. And one is this. Christ didn't consult the congregation and take a vote on these men. Okay, He continued all night in prayer with His Father. And then he called these men. And then he chose them. Right? In other words, this was not a popularity contest. 
Okay, these men weren't chosen based upon their profession. They weren't chosen based upon their popularity or their status in the community. God chose to use some of the most obscure and insignificant men in society during this time. Right? To change the world forever. Think about that. So how does that apply to us? I mean, if he can use men like that, could he not use us as well? Of course he could. But the second thing I want you to notice here is that Christ chose these men for service, not salvation. Okay? They were already following him. They were already his disciples. Okay? So be careful not to read salvation into this text here because Christ had already called them to follow him and they did. Right? So now he's choosing them for a very specific and a very special service within his kingdom. And man, can we learn a lot here based on the people that he chose? And we're going to look into this a little deeper. So read with me in uh, verses 14 through 16. Simon, whom he also named Peter and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the zealot. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. All right, I want you to just look at these guys here for a minute, okay? They're just a bunch of guys. That's what they are. You don't see any kings. You don't see any governors. You don't see any centurions in this group, okay? Not at all. They're just normal guys, all right? But what a beautiful picture of the church that we see here. I mean, you've got everything from hot tempers to traitors in this group, okay? And then sprinkled in among these guys, you've even got some no-names. So let's take a little bit closer look into the lives of these men because we're going to get a really beautiful picture of the church, in my opinion. But you have 12 men here that contrast the 12 tribes of Israel, or you might say that they complement them in some ways, but ultimately what they do is they embody the essence of the church. Okay. First, you got Peter. Now, Peter, he was just a common fisherman. We know that. But Jesus called him the rock or the stone. Right. So Peter's life, if you think about it, it's really the plight of every believer in a sense. I mean, he had this battle with the flesh and the spirit throughout his life that many of us experience as well. But he had a real heart for Christ. And of course, this gives hope to every believer that struggles with their flesh, right? But longs to be a rock in the kingdom of God. It gives us hope. So don't give up. Keep fighting the good fight. Christ used David. Christ used Peter. And he can most definitely use you. Next, we got Andrew. Now, Andrew is the one who actually led Peter to Christ. Okay, his brother. John 1, 41 and 42. But what a witness that is. I mean, every Christian is called to lead other people to Christ. And Andrew started with his brother. So what does that tell us? Man, let's reach our family first. Let's reach our family with the gospel and then reach the world. Andrew's a good model of that. Evangelism is at the heart, the very heart of Christianity. And one who wins souls is wise, according to Proverbs 11, verse 30. So next you got James and John. Jesus called these two the sons of thunder, which is just a great nickname. Uh, he, they got that nickname because we're not there yet in the Gospel of Luke. But once we get to Luke chapter 9, we'll see that they wanted to actually call fire down from heaven to consume a Samaritan village. right? So they get the nickname sons of thunder. They were obviously a little spicy from time to time. 
But you know, I think that's all right. It's okay to have a little bit of grit as a believer, just as long as we balance that grit with grace. Right? We must do that. And I think John did a fantastic job of that. I mean, he wrote a lot about love in his gospel. Of course, in all of his letters, we see it as well. But then again, you have Peter, James, and John. Those three sort of had an extra blessing, if you will, or an additional blessing in that they were the ones that Christ brought up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay, so Christ revealed some things to these three men that he didn't reveal to the other nine. And of course, that reminds us of a couple of things. It reminds us of a great discipleship model. It reminds us of the structure of the church. For example, you had the multitudes, right, of disciples on the mountain. And from those, he chose 12. And from those, he chose three. Okay, so just like the church, you have the congregation. Within the church, you have elders. And from the elders, you have pastors. Or you could say a first among equals in terms of spiritual authority anyway, given by God to guide and equip his people. So that would be how we relate the structure of the church to this model. But look at the discipleship model. Look at how Christ discipled people. You had the multitudes again, and then the 12, and then the three, right? So don't get burdened down by thinking you have to disciple everybody within your sphere of influence. You're only going to get real close to two or three of them. But those two or three people we need to pour into and make disciples of Christ as best we can. So we learn a lot here. But then next you have Philip and Bartholomew. Okay, now Bartholomew was also called Nathaniel in the scriptures. But Philip, he was from the same town as Peter and Andrew, and he actually brought Nathaniel to Christ. Okay, now Nathaniel, he's the one who asked Jesus, can anything good come from Nazareth? You remember that? John 1, But, you know, that was an honest question. I mean, I think it was. I mean, Jesus knew his heart because Christ did call Nathanael a man in whom is no deceit. That's John 1, 47. So I think we can learn here that it's okay to come to God with our honest questions. God is big enough to handle the honest questions of our heart. There's no doubt about that. Next, we come to Matthew and Thomas. Matthew, of course, is Levi. He was the tax collector. We've been studying him recently, but he also wrote the very first gospel, the gospel of Matthew. And Thomas was the disciple who, you know, he's famously known for his doubting. You know, maybe he gets a little bit of a bad rap, but we read about him in John chapter 20, verses 27 through 28. But you know, he was famously known for his doubting, but he was also ready to die with Jesus in Judea, if necessary, according to John eleven forty six. So history also tells us that Thomas is likely the disciple who brought the gospel to India. And so Christ can change the heart of a corrupt tax collector like Matthew in the same way that he can calm the heart of a courageous doubter like Thomas. I mean, the church is just made up of a plethora of personalities. Okay, we're all different. And Christ has fit us together into one body so that we can reach every single person In the world, every single person, regardless of personality type, can find their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, next we have James, the son of Alphaeus. Okay, now we don't know much about this particular James here, but we do know that the author of the book of James that we have in Scripture was the earthly brother of Christ. Okay, and he was the overseer of the church in Jerusalem. And we know that this James here is not that James. Okay, they're different. So the, the James here that we're looking at, James, the son of Alphaeus, 
he would have ministered in relative obscurity, at least as it relates to what we have in documented scripture. But in reality, you know, if you think about it, this James here, he might be one of the greatest apostles. We don't know. He may have one of the biggest blessings of any of the apostles that we read about. I mean, because he may have been relatively unknown to man, but he was very great in the kingdom of God. How do we know that? Even though we don't know much about James, the son of Alphaeus, we know that his name will be written right there on the foundation walls of the New Jerusalem, right next to the other apostles. That's how we know he was great in the kingdom of God. That's Revelation 21:14. So I can assure you, though we don't know much about his story, God knows exactly who James, the son of Alphaeus, is, no doubt. But how beautiful are the saints of God who minister and labor behind the scenes within the body of Christ. I mean, you have so many people that pray and serve and work and minister without ever a complaint, without ever any cry for attention. In other words, their left hand doesn't even know what the right hand is doing. There are so many faithful saints like that in the church of God. Jesus said about these people, who serve in that way. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 4, he said that your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Man, the church, again, is just filled with people who serve today without any human recognition, but will one day receive the accolades of heaven. What a beautiful day that'll be. Next, we come to Simon the Zealot. And again, we don't know a lot about Simon here. We don't know a lot about his new life anyway. In Christ, we should see, but we can learn a lot from his old life as a zealot that's for sure because a zealot was somebody who they wanted to overthrow the roman government that's what a zealot was they wanted to free the jews from roman authority okay so simon's zeal was very much a political zeal okay you could say that he was even a nationalist okay he was a jew first kind of a guy Right? And I doubt that he and Matthew got along all that great before coming to Christ. I mean, I wouldn't think so. Because Matthew was in cahoots with the Romans, and Simon wanted to overthrow them. Right? So I'm sure that resulted in some pretty interesting conversations around the campfire from time to time. But as it relates to us, if Americans can learn anything from the disciples, I think we can learn something here from Simon, for sure. Because... American nationalism and Christianity are one and the same. People look at that as the same thing, at least many people do. And uh, that's unfortunate, right, because they're not. American nationalism and Christianity are not the same. Okay, many churches have turned their services, unfortunately, into political pep rallies. They sing songs about our country instead of songs about our God. So we've got to be careful here. Okay, we need to closely examine the life of this apostle because Simon was actually called out of politics in order to proclaim the Messiah. He was called out of nationalism into evangelism. Okay, he was called from preaching the glory of Israel to preaching the glory of Israel's king. Very different. I mean, honestly... It doesn't matter what your politics are, okay? I'm not interested in that. I mean, because we're all going to stand before God one day and answer for how we vote. But I'm also not afraid to address politics when necessary from the pulpit, when it's warranted. But I think the lesson for the church here is that politics and patriotism are never, ever to take the place of the gospel message. Okay, we are the church of Jesus Christ, not the church of America, 
Okay, so please don't let your love of country supersede your love of Christ. And no, I'm not saying patriotism is bad. I'm just saying we are the church. Our message is the gospel. So lastly, we come to the two, two Judases, rather. The first Judas, he's the, the son of James. He's also called Thaddeus in Scripture. Many people believe that he also authored the book of Jude, because Jude is another name for Judas. And then there's Judas Iscariot. Okay, he's the one that our Lord called the son of perdition. That's because he was a betrayer. He was the one Jesus would use to fulfill the prophecies of Jeremiah 32 and Zechariah 11. Okay, so what we learn here is that the wheat and the tares actually grow up together in the church, just like Jesus said they do, right? In Matthew chapter 13, verse 30. So not everyone in the church has a great testimony. Not everyone in the church has good intentions, okay? Because the enemy has corrupted the camp, if you will, to some degree. Okay, but when Christ comes for the harvest, then you can be sure that the wheat is going to be placed into the barn and the tares are going to be thrown into the fire. So I think it would be a good idea for us to be sure that our lives as believers actually do resemble the wheat rather than the weed that just merely looks like the wheat. But I want to make one more point here regarding these apostles. I think it's an important one before we move on. And that point is this. All of these men were young. All of these guys were young. The word of God says, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. That's 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. And I like what Dr. Ironside said about this. He said, youth is the time to yield oneself to Christ for his service, life service. Too many people wait until the flower of life is past before giving heed to the divine call. And accepting the cross with all that that implies. Amen. Too many people today want to put off growing up. Way too many. They want to put off maturity one more day. Just one more season. Maybe if I can just stay young for one more year. Right? Now there's nothing wrong with being young in and of itself. Okay? But as scripture says, it's, it's all about how you live while you're young. So many young people, look, and I know I sound like an old man right now. Okay, I get that. I get that. But please hear me out because this is so true of our culture today. Many young people forsake the responsibility that they have as a young man, as a godly man, in favor of a reckless, self-serving lifestyle. In other words, they prefer to stay weak-minded and undisciplined just as long as they can. They want to stretch that out because they've been told that self-importance is the only thing of any importance. Not true. Our youth have been fed the lie that self-pleasure is the only thing that matters. That just looking out for number one is the only thing you need to look out for. Again, not true. But when they believe that, what they do is they trade the greater pleasures and joys of a life lived for Jesus and His strength with his care, right? And for others, they trade the joy of Christ for a few years of temporary selfishness. That all that does is just build up baggage. It delays the inevitable because one day you will grow up. One day you will have to grow up. So wouldn't you rather grow up in the arms of Jesus? Wouldn't you rather grow up like that with the support of the church around you? Wouldn't you rather trust in him and live for him all throughout those formative years? 
than just flail around out there on your own, right? With absolutely no clue of the direction for your life. Guys, the fountain of youth was never meant to be a 30-year-long frat party. It's not it. The years of your youth are meant to learn the Word of God, develop discipline in your conduct, and learn how to walk in love and learn how to walk in the Spirit. It's, to, it's a time to grow up in the faith. It's a time to learn purity and obedience to the Word of God. Young people are to be the example of these things. They're not the exemption. Okay? So can I just encourage all of you young people, please commit your life to Christ. Follow Him into the unknowns of your life. In other words, go all in. Right? Take that step of faith. Let Christ be the light to guide you through the difficulties of your life. Let Christ be that anchor of your soul and the foundation upon which you stand. Let Christ be that foundation that you begin to build your life upon. Don't waste your youth on yourself. Don't do that. I can assure you, you have bigger things to live for. All right, I'll try to pick up the pace as we move through the rest of the verses here this morning. Verse 17, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of the, their diseases. So some people think that the Sermon on the Mount that we read about in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 are different than the Sermon on the Plain that we read here in Luke 6. Okay? And they make the distinction between the mountain and the level place, right? or the plain. Okay? They, they use other details as well that Luke seems to leave out. But you know what? I think this is just Luke's abbreviated version rather, of Matthew's account. Okay? I, I don't think it's a different sermon. I think it's a different account of the same sermon, if that makes any sense. right? Because it's completely possible to stand on a level place on the side of a mountain. Okay? As D.A. Carson puts it, he says the Greek word here that's translated as plain in the text or level place, it can mean a plateau in a mountainous region. Okay, So I think this is the Sermon on the Mount. Others believe that it's two different sermons with similar messages because Christ was an itinerant preacher. Oftentimes that means he taught in different places but the same message. Look, either way, uh, we can all agree it's a great message. Right. It's a great message from the greatest preacher of all time. So moving on to verses 18 and 19, we see that Christ, he not only healed diseases, but he also healed those who were possessed by demons. Verse 18, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. Verse 19, and the whole multitude sought to touch him for power went out from him and healed them all. So Christ has the power over the spirit world, just as he has power over the physical world. And notice here that he has the compassion to heal everybody, everyone, even in the midst of having to make this very critical decision of who he was going to call to carry his message to the world. Christ was never too busy to help somebody who was hurting. Never. And we should learn something here. Christ's ability to balance the stress of this day that he was in came from his continued prayer through the night with his father. And the wisdom that believers have for decision making, the power that we have, the strength that we have for meeting the needs of other people, all of that comes from our continued fellowship with our Father. And now in verse 20, Jesus begins to explain what is the character that's expected and the attitude that's expected of his disciples along with the corresponding blessing. Look at verse 20. 
Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now look, Jesus said, Blessed are you poor. He did not say, Blessed are you who are poor. Okay? So the implication here is the same that we see from Matthew, who said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Okay? In other words, I am what is poor. I am poor, not just my financial situation, okay? So to be poor in spirit, as Dr. Ironside said, is to be without spiritual assets. That's a great way to say that. Because we have nothing in which to purchase grace. Nothing. Okay, therefore we must receive it by faith, right? And the poor in spirit are actually the richest in faith. Charles Spurgeon said, Not what I have, but what I have not is the first point of contact between my soul and God. Amen. And I would add that we all have the same thing, which again is exactly nothing. We have nothing. We're all bankrupt before God, and only those who realize the poverty of their own spirit will find their place in the kingdom of God through faith in Christ. Verse 21. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Again, we get a fuller view from Matthew's account. He wrote this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, righteousness. That's Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. And so if we are to hunger for righteousness, then we are to weep over our sin, right? We weep over our spiritual condition today in hopes of eternal joy to come. Today I weep, but tomorrow I will laugh. In other words, weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning, according to Psalm 30, verse 5. So you see for the believer in Jesus Christ, the struggle of this life, the struggle that we find ourselves in ends forever the very moment we close our eyes in this life and open them up in the presence of our Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, according to 2 Corinthians 5.8. So all of the sorrow and all of the weeping that a Christian will ever know is right here in this world. Just a few short years, and that's it, right? That's it. Believer, eternal, eternal laughter rather, is on the horizon for you. What a joy. Guys, a new day is dawning. A new kingdom is coming. And your tears will forever be wiped away, according to Revelation 21.4. So embrace the cross today. Right? Embrace the suffering today. Confess your sin. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. Not to be regretted, the word says. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Amen. So let the beauty of the gospel bring you to your knees in repentance. Hunger for Christ and his righteousness. Weep over your sins. Come to the cross and die to yourself. And start living for Jesus. Stop living for yourself, right? And if you do that, then you're going to be able to look forward to the laughter and the joy that awaits every believer in Jesus Christ for all of eternity. Today we weep. Tomorrow we will laugh, and we will laugh for all of eternity. Verse 22. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Okay, so for the Son of Man's sake is, of course, the operative phrase here, right? It's never fun to be hated. It's never fun to be excluded, reviled, or cast out, and so on. But we should be careful to not confuse our own actions with our witness for Christ, okay? And so what I mean is, am I hated 
Or am I excluded because of my own actions and attitudes? Or have I been reviled and cast out because of my clear testimony for Christ? Big difference. Okay, being treated unfairly is not in and of itself persecution. All right? We live in a fallen world with a bunch of unfair sinners just like ourselves. That's the world we live in. But real persecution comes as a result of genuine faith. Okay, and that faith is to be lived out before others who don't have it. Verse 23, rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Okay, so the trademarks of a true prophet of God are this, a poor spirit, which means meekness or humility, a hunger for righteousness and a sorrow for sin, and even quite possibly and most likely an exclusion or persecution from the world because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so that puts all of us in the same boat as all of the other true prophets that have come before us, right? And remember, some of those prophets were even persecuted unto death. But to be a prophet of God, it just simply means to speak truth. That's what that means, okay? To speak the truth of the Word of God. It's not always about telling the future. It's about telling the truth. And so Jesus said, blessed are the true prophets of God. Okay, or the true followers of Christ. But woe to the false prophets who pervert the truth of God's word or live according to their own version of that truth. Look at verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. So the wealth of the rich on this earth is equal to a woe in heaven. Think about that. The wealth of the rich on earth is equal to a woe in heaven. The reward for rejecting Christ in favor of just accumulating all of these riches in this world is whatever you can earn on your own and spend in your lifetime. Okay? For you have received your consolation, Jesus said. Because the next life has actually nothing to offer for people like that. Your reward has already been spent. See, heaven is the home for the humble sinner who recognizes the poverty of their own soul. And they've trusted in Christ for their salvation. Therefore, they have laid up their treasure in heaven. Right? So those who are down here trying to live their best life now and all of that stuff, they better get all they can get while it lasts. Because there's no consolation prize in heaven for those people who just lived their life their own way, who did it their own way. There's no consolation prize in heaven for them. Christ is the way. Christ is the truth and he is the life and no one comes to the Father except through him. So let's lay up our treasures in heaven. Verse 25, Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Okay, so the truth is, the feast of sin in this life is only going to leave you hungry in the next. Okay, those who fill up on worldly pleasures today will find themselves one day hungering for heaven. Those who laugh at sin today will be weeping and mourning in eternity. So again, think about that. The greatest joy, the absolute greatest joy for those who reject Christ is only in the passing pleasures of their short little life. That's it. That's all the joy they will ever know. Did you know that the average lifespan in America today is 79 years? That's an average lifespan. So that's 28,835 days, okay? Now, of course, you're going to be sleeping for a third of those days, so go ahead and subtract 9,600 days from that total, and you're left with 19,235 days in your life if you're average, 
You know what the Bible calls that? James calls that a vapor. That's a vapor, according to James chapter 4, verse 14. Woe to those who fill up on the flesh for just a few short years while laughing in the face of eternity. The word says, you know what, if that's you, you're going to hunger and you're going to mourn and you're going to weep. So I hope that the message of Christ is coming through loud and clear to us this morning. Verse 26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. So now it's important to understand Jesus is not condemning compliments here. Okay, that's not his point. As G. Campbell Morgan says, he says, the first group of prophets were persecuted and the second group of prophets were patronized. And that's exactly right. That's what he's pointing to here. In other words, the true prophets of God will be persecuted in this life and they will be blessed in the next. But woe to the patronized false prophets. Okay, because those who live for the praise of men in this life, they're going to suffer just, just punishment from their Holy Father in the next life. So again, the contrast could not be any more clear here. Okay, we see the blessing and we see the cursing. Those who forsake all and follow Jesus, they belong to God and they're going to be blessed by God and they're going to be blessed for all of eternity. But those who forsake Jesus and they choose to follow their own path have woe after woe after woe awaiting them. But as we've seen in the lives of these men that Jesus chose from the multitude, the 12, that he chose to spread his message to the world, man, you don't have to be perfect to come to Christ. You don't. Okay, you don't have to have it all together before coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. None of these men did. Nobody does. But if you will simply turn from your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith to save you, then you can have eternal life. You can have the blessing of heaven. You know, the church is made up of imperfect people. That's what we are. We're a group of very imperfect people who have simply found forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ. It's just a group of people that have decided to trade their own way for the way of Christ. That's what we've done. You know, the church is just a group of people who said, you know what? We're not gambling anymore with our eternity. We're not going to do that. We've pushed all of our chips to the middle of the table. And we've said that we're all in. We've decided that we're going to follow Jesus Christ. Okay, knowing that Christ has filled our bankrupt souls with the riches of his heaven. Think about that. Praise the Lord. Guys, don't forsake your eternity for less than 20,000 days of selfishness. Don't do it. Don't reject the embrace of Christ in favor of the envy of men. Humble yourself before the Lord. Hunger for righteousness. Weep over your sin and receive the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And then you can enjoy the blessings of his grace all throughout eternity. All throughout eternity. For today and forevermore. Praise the Lord. We love you, Lord, and thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the truth that we find here. Lord, would you give us the grace to heed the warnings that we see here as well. We see such a contrast in the passage of Scripture that we read today. We see the blessings and we see the woes. And it's a stark contrast. And so, Lord, would you, again, minister to our hearts this morning. If there is anything 
that we're holding up higher in our life than the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, we want to repent of that. We want to crush and kill our idols today. Only Christ, only you, Lord, are worthy to sit on the throne of our heart. So would you do that? Would you forgive us for the many times that we have failed you and fallen short? Where we've traded the passing pleasures of sin for eternal treasures laid up in heaven, would you forgive us? Help us, Lord, to stop living selfishly in this world. We're disciples, we're learners, but we're also apostles in the sense that we are messengers. We are called to carry the true message of the gospel to the world. We can't do that if we're only concerned about ourselves. So Lord, help us to live for Jesus 100%, to go all in, not look back, to live the life that you've called us to live as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. There's a world out there that is broken, that has fallen, that's demonic, and that is spiraling into the pit. They need Jesus. And you've called us to bring the light of the gospel to them. Please give us the strength and the resolve and the willpower that we need to do that. Lord, convict us. Lead us to the people that we can lead to Christ. There's people right here in our community that need Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would get us in front of them. There's people out here in our community that need a church home. We pray, Lord, that we can minister to them. Of course, Lord, I want to lift up all of the other Bible-teaching, Bible-believing churches in our area. Please, Lord, bless them. We want to partner with them in the mission of the gospel. But if there's people out there that they're not reaching, that we can reach, Lord, we want to do that. We want to be there for them. Would you help us individually? As a body of believers, we're just as unique as those disciples you called. We all have different personalities, different talents, different giftings. Would you fit us together in this local body of Christ and help us, empower us, strengthen us to use our gifts and our talents for your glory? We love you, Lord. We thank you for this message. Help us to lose our appetite for this world and hunger for heaven. Hunger for the righteousness of our Savior. For it's in only Christ that we find our hope. It's only in Christ that we are completely and fully satisfied. It's only in Christ that we can find forgiveness of our sin and hope for eternity. So if there's somebody who's hearing this message today who's never turned from their sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, I pray that they would do that even now believing that Jesus is the Son of God who came to this earth and died on that cross for their sin and rose again, giving them the hope of heaven if they would believe. I pray that they would believe. We love you, Lord. Please have your way. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.